0: So I got to tell you, you we have an amazing staff here at Spirit and Life. Uh, this week at staff meeting, I came and I said, Marty, it's come to my attention that I don't preach as long as the, the, the other pastor, Matt, and so we often have a little bit of extra time. How would it be if we sang an additional song? And without having to, to think at all about what that might mean for literally six days from now, she said, yeah, we can do that. We're going to get them some stools next time so they're not standing for so long, but we're going, to, we're going to see if we can't sing a little bit more because I think it's great. I think, the, I think it's great to, to, to get active and to get involved and to, to really sing out and let our praises shout forth. Um, I want to tell you this morning um, that today is the Virginia Annual Conference's Day of Prayer for General Conference. Now, that's a lot of technical terms, and um, what all that means is Methodists from around the state of Virginia are today praying for the quadrennial, every four year, I believe that's quadrennial, did I get any, any scholars I got that? Yes, um, gathering of Methodists from around the world where they come together and decide whether we're going to make any changes to our policy or doctrine or way we go about doing church. Now, there is probably going to be a lot of media coverage um, once that gets going in late May, uh, because wouldn't you believe there are a few hot-button issues that people of faith are talking about these days? I know, strange to think. Um, But as a way of making sure that we are doing what God wants us to do, or as a way of trying to, to help us do what God wants us to do, um, each annual conference, basically each state or area, is taking a day. And so that this general conference, this gathering, will be completely bathed in prayer. And today is Virginia's day. So I tell you all of that to tell you that at 11 o'clock after this service, we're going to go into our prayer room where we pray each and every Sunday. And we are part of that prayer is going to be for general conference, that God's will could be done through the delegates that are going, that what they decide will be in keeping with what God wants for his church. Um, so if you want to be a part of that, uh, I, I invite you to that. And today, for 24 consecutive hours, a church on our district will be praying for General Conference. So, no matter what happens, you can't say we didn't pray about it. That's that's, I guess, the least we can do. But, anyways, back to your regularly scheduled sermon. Nerdy theology alert! Nerdy theology alert! My apologies, but the time has come. I've waited as long as I could, but I must share with you my favorite quote from a nerdy theology book that I've read a bunch of times. Now, before I do, I must tell you that I have truly been patient. It might not feel like it, but I have. You can ask my wife, because when we were first dating, I talked with her about this book and about this quote, and let me tell you, nerdy theology quotes Not as great a dating tactic as you might imagine, or probably exactly as great a dating tactic as you might imagine, but I digress. It comes from St. Augustine's spiritual autobiography entitled Confessions, and if right now you have an Usher song going through your head, well, you and me are kindred spirits, and if you've never heard of Usher, you're probably better off for it. St. Augustine, a bishop in Africa at the turn of the 5th century, towards the end end of his life, crafted a narrative of his journey to Christianity through atheism and agnosticism and gnosticism and probably another couple isms thrown in there, and he wrote it as a long prayer to God. And he begins with perhaps the most beautiful paragraph ever written. And if you don't get the beauty or why I like it so much, please, on your way out of church, just fake it with me today. Here it is. You are great, Lord, and highly to be praised. Great is your power and your wisdom is immeasurable. Man, a little piece of your creation desires to praise you. A human being bearing his mortality with him. Carrying with him the witness of his sin and the witness that you resist the proud. Nevertheless, to praise you is the desire of man, a little piece of your creation. You stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. You have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. I can think of no better way to describe God's grace in my life in one sentence than that. Now I'm going to ask you, and remember you agreed to fake it with me this morning, isn't that beautiful? Y'all are great. I read that to you as a way of summing up what we talked about last week in the first week of our new sermon series, Contagious. We are talking about developing a contagious faith, and the first step in that is understanding that our faith is transformative, it's saving, it matters in the here and now, that our God is reaching out to us and that we are not whole in this life or the next until we find our rest in God. We are here, you are here, because to a certain degree, a life lived outside of God's grace is exhausting, less than doesn't measure up. So you have committed your life to following Christ and your heart has found rest only in God. Last week, we talked about how that is step one in becoming a contagious Christian. You have to know that God makes a real difference in your life because step two in becoming a contagious Christian is wanting that for others and wanting it badly. In fact, step two in becoming a contagious Christian is having your heart break for people who don't know Jesus. There's another quote from this nerdy theology book that I want to read for you, because even though eventually Augustine becomes a Christian, a pastor, a bishop, and one of the most influential theologians in church history, he didn't start there. When he was a young adult, he fell in with a Gnostic sect called the Manichees. They believed that there was a divine spark within each person, that was longing to escape the physical world, which was evil. And something about how if you ate dates, it set the spark free. It was weird. Augustine's mother, whose name was Monica, was a Christian, a deeply committed Christian. And she was deeply concerned about the state of her son's soul. I imagine there might be some in here today who can empathize with that. So she did what any good mother who was concerned about her son's soul would do. She went to talk to her pastor about it. And her pastor said, let him be where he is, only pray the Lord for him. By his reading, he will discover what an error and how vast an impiety it all is. Basically, give him time. He'll work it out for himself. I mean, chances are when he has kids, he'll come back to church with the kids and all will be well. Then Augustine writes, When he said this to her, she was still unwilling to take no for an answer. She pressed him with more begging and with a flood of tears, asking him to see me and debate with me. Monica was not going to give up so easily. She persisted. She persisted to the point of tears, Her heart was breaking for her son. Her heart was bursting for her son. She could not, would not, accept that her son would not share her faith. Augustine continues, He was now irritated and a little vexed. Pastors don't get irritated or vexed, no. And said, Go away from me. As you live, it cannot be that the son of these tears should perish. I love that line. It cannot be that the son of these tears should perish. Augustine finishes saying that Monica took these words as if they had sounded from heaven. I have met many a time with parents who feel the same way about their grown children as Monica did about Augustine, who yearn to have their kids be a part of church, to share their faith in Jesus Christ, to know God as a saving God. Many of you here might be like Monica. But here's the thing. There's a work that God wants to do in you that God did in Monica and that served as the basis for why the son of these tears wouldn't perish. You see, Monica's pastor could tell that Augustine would eventually come back to the Lord because he saw the passion she had for her son's salvation. He saw the urgency she had for her son to know Jesus. He saw that her heart was breaking because he was not in church. God had put in Monica's heart a desire to bring her son to Jesus. God had put in Monica's heart a holy unsettling that would not be okay until her son was back in church. God had done a work in her heart that ensured that Augustine was not getting away. And God wants to do that in your heart this day. Last week we talked about how we have a saving faith. And that saving faith makes a difference in our lives in the here and now. We talked about how the first step in being a contagious Christian is understanding how and what God has saved you from. The second step in being a contagious Christian is wanting that salvation, that healing, that wholeness for someone else so badly that your heart breaks for them until they know the Lord. There's this great moment in Paul's second letter to Timothy right at the beginning where Paul says so much in so few words, which is strange for Paul because usually it takes him a lot of words to say anything and everything, but I digress. But in 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul tells us a lot in one sentence. He is writing to his protege Timothy and giving him greetings and saying that he hopes to see Timothy soon. Then he says, I, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. In just one sentence, we get a whole family history because we know what it can look like for faith to be passed down from one generation to the next. I imagine most of us are here or are Christians because of someone else's faith whether it's a parent, a grandparent, or a friend. Or we have friends whose parents were faithful people and who are in church. Our friends are in church because of their faithful parents. I can see Lois taking Eunice to church. Maybe Eunice rebelled a bit in college but continued to go to church with her mom. And then when Timothy came along, you'd have grandma, mom, and baby in the same pew. Eunice probably volunteered in the nursery. Lois would do snack for vacation Bible school and Timothy would usher every Youth Sunday. But while this scenario might seem so familiar, this is Scripture. It's revelation. It's truth from God. And the simple truth that so many churches and families want to ignore is that Paul is saying that Timothy has faith not because of a dynamic youth program or children's program. Timothy has faith, but not because of a charismatic pastor or they had a really good youth choir that year. Timothy has faith because his mother had faith and because his grandmother had faith. And his mother and his grandmother imparted that faith to their son and grandson, perhaps with the help of a youth pastor or a charismatic pastor. But Paul is telling us first and foremost that faith is transferred person to person, mother to child, friend to friend. You have to believe this and you have to buy into this if you're going to become a contagious Christian. Because this isn't just about parents and children. It's about all of us. If you think that there is a magic bullet church program that will lead someone to faith, you will be greatly disappointed. If you think you can outsource evangelism to the institutional church, you will never be successful at bringing someone to Jesus. Evangelism has always been and will always be person to person. We have to understand that this is our job, that this is the work each one of us is called to, and it's something we have to actually do. If your heart breaks for someone who doesn't know Jesus, you have to understand that bringing that person to Jesus isn't on the church, and it's not on the pastor, it's on you. Now, that might sound daunting, That might sound like the person your heart is breaking for, the person you desperately want to bring to Jesus, is Princess Leia saying, help me, you're my only hope. That was for Mike Finnegan. (laughs) You do have help in this work. You do have help in this task. Because the Spirit of God is active and working in this world and wants to help you. So you're not alone. Let me tell you another story about a lost person finding Jesus. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Kandake, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. So from the beginning of this story, we see that the Spirit is active in helping us reach out to people in the name of Jesus Christ. So like I said, the good news is we have help. The bad news is sometimes the Spirit's going to help you by telling you to do stuff. And when that happens, you got to do what the Spirit tells you to do. So the Spirit tells Philip to go to this road, And then to stay near that chariot. And Philip does what the Spirit says. The story continues. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Philip realized that the Spirit had put him in the right place at the right time. So he takes his opportunity. And right here is where I have to remind us why all of this has to start with the work that God does in us to make our hearts break for people who don't know Jesus. Because how many times do we let opportunities slip by because we're afraid, embarrassed, too busy, too awkward, or too timid? If your heart isn't breaking for the person that doesn't know Jesus, you're going to let that opportunity pass you by. Philip's heart broke for the Ethiopian who didn't know Jesus, so he spoke up. Our story continues. This is the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all towns until he reached Caesarea. So to recap. Recap. Philip is told by the Spirit to go and do something. And Philip does what the Spirit commands. Philip meets a man who doesn't know Jesus, and his heart breaks for him. So he speaks up and invites him to hear the story of Jesus. And in that moment, this man's life is changed. He wants to be baptized, he wants to accept Jesus Christ, he wants to be a Christian, and he's hooked all because Philip did not shrink away from an opportunity that the Spirit gave him. Now, at this point, the sermon admittedly has been a bit just disjointed and all over the place. We've had a story about a mother and son, about a grandmother, mother and son, and about an apostle and an Ethiopian he'd never met before. I've had a few independent movements that haven't really related to one another clearly. I admit it, it's okay. But what I hope to do now is unleash all of these movements in a convincing whole using one last story from Scripture. So hopefully in about five minutes you won't be really confused. It comes from Luke's gospel early on in Jesus' ministry. In the fifth chapter of Luke, Jesus calls a man named Levi to be one of his disciples. In other gospels, Levi has a different name, Matthew. But in every gospel, he has the same profession. He's a tax collector, and a tax collector is the exact wrong person you'd expect Jesus to call to be his disciple. They were the worst. They were despised. They were outcasts. But Jesus calls Levi anyway, and, it, and Luke five twenty seven and 28 says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Luke doesn't fill us in on the details. We don't catch much of the interaction. All we know is that Jesus calls Levi, and in that moment, Levi has some transformative experience. Levi leaves behind everything, his profession, his safety, his security, in order to follow Jesus. Levi is a changed man. But I don't want to dwell on that because that was last week's sermon. What I want to dwell on is what comes next. Luke continues, then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. What does Levi do upon converting? Scripture doesn't tell us that he went out and bunch, bought a bunch of Stephen Curtis. I go for funny and I mess it up. Scripture doesn't tell us that he went out and bought a bunch of Stephen Curtis Chapman CDs, or changed his radio presets, or hit up Lifeway for the latest John Ortberg book. He might have done all those things, but that's not what Scripture tells us he does. Scripture tells us that upon converting and following Jesus, Levi holds a great banquet for Jesus and for all his former tax collector friends. Levi's experience with Jesus was so profound that not only did he convert immediately, leave everything behind and follow Christ, but he throws a dinner party so that all of his former friends could meet this man, could encounter this man, could have their lives changed by this man. Levi throws a party so that everyone he knows could meet the man that changed his life. Levi throws a party so that everyone he knows could come and meet Jesus. And it is at this point at which all our disparate threads come together, hopefully. One, has Jesus changed your life? Are you so convinced that Jesus has changed your life that you can't not tell people about it? Levi was so convinced. Two, is your heart breaking for someone in your life that doesn't yet know Jesus? Are you aching to introduce someone in your life to the man that changed yours? Are you desperate to bring the same healing and wholeness that you have experienced into someone else's life? Levi was. Three, Are you following the Spirit's lead to find people and get to know people in the world who don't know Jesus? I mean, it sounds so simple, but we can't help lost people find Christ if we spend all of our time with church people. Levi knew exactly who he wanted to introduce to Christ. Do we? Number four, are we creating opportunities to introduce people to Jesus? Levi threw a dinner party. What are we doing? And lastly, number five, are we making the most out of each opportunity or are we continuing to let them pass by? I want to close with how Luke finishes this particular story because the story doesn't quite end with Levi throwing a party. Something happens at this party. Luke continues, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belong to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So thousands of years of biblical interpretation have given us a particular understanding of who the Pharisees were, but more accurately and generally, Pharisees were church people. Religious insiders. And friends, let me tell you where they got it wrong, and let it serve as a warning to all of us. If you think that Jesus came for people who are in church, you have missed the boat. If you think that Jesus came for good people, for people who are whole, for people who have it all together, we might need to do a refresher on what the cross was all about. The Pharisees thought that God and religion and the church existed for people who are already in the church who already got it, who were already good. Jesus set them straight. Jesus has not come to call the righteous, but to sinners, to the lost, to those who don't have it all figured out, to those that need healing. That's who Jesus is for. And if we don't understand that in our heads and in our hearts, if our hearts aren't breaking for those who don't yet know Jesus, if we aren't out there doing what we can to bring our friends to Jesus, then we are missing the point just as much as the Pharisees did. When you think about the healing and wholeness that Jesus has brought to your life, who else in your life needs to experience that same healing and that same wholeness? Who does your heart break for? And what are you doing to create opportunities to introduce that person to Jesus? What can you do this very week to make the most out of that opportunity? Let us pray. Almighty and all-living God, you did not come for the righteous. You did not come for those who have it all figured out. So anyone that's got it all figured out, well... They don't need you like we need you. We don't have it all figured out. We need healing. We need wholeness. We need you. We need your grace. We need you to break into our lives and change those bad habits that we can't change ourselves. We need you to break into our lives and change those bad choices that we can't stop making ourselves. We need more and more of you in our lives. And we know others do too. Open our hearts to those that need your grace. Open our hearts to those that need you in their lives. Open our hearts until our hearts break for that person. Until our hearts burst for that person. Until we can't do anything but bring that person to you. Create opportunities that allow us to speak your name and give us courage to take those opportunities. All this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, who came for the broken, who came for the lost, who came for the left out, who came for us. Amen.